0: Welcome to APG's first and only podcast, and Susan, possibly our last, depending (laughs) how things go here. We'll see. Yes. My name is Sean Keefe, and I am your host, along with Susan Thompson, who will be our co-host. Susan is the CECOM historian and just full of information. And today's podcast is called APG's Hidden History. And Susan, would you like to tell us why?
1: Sure. So let's think about what that means when we say APG's hidden history. Because right now APG has been here for over a hundred years, or an active military installation, but there was a lot of things that happened in this area before APG came. And a lot of that history is not available to the public to come and visit because we're an active military installation. You just can't come here, and some of the things are dangerous.
0: You're absolutely right. And before we start, I'd like to say, and this is with peace and love, do not, please do not come onto the installation looking to find these locations that we may speak about. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Yes, Um, there are laws against it as well. We are federally protected property, so... Correct. Just enjoy the stories as we tell them. Um, if you have questions, we're around. But this is more for people's general knowledge to get a sense of what was here because those stories are lost and hidden sometimes. So that's what we're here to talk about.
0: And that is correct. And not only is it our premiere episode, Susan, but yes. it's also our Halloween episode. Ooh. And that pretty much sums everything up. That's right. Okay. Uh, so today's episode, um, I have titled, I've taken it upon myself, Susan, okay. to call Hubble, Bubble, Toil and Trouble.
1: Well, you know, that's interesting because you aren't the first person to associate Edwin Hubble with lines of from Shakespeare. So well, we can get into that a little bit more. Let's do it. Okay. Our first episode is going to be focused on one of the islands that's right off the coast of the coastline of APG. And APG covers over 72,000 acres of land, and a lot of that is along the Chesapeake Bay. So, Spasuti Island... (laughs)
0: That was good timing there.
1: <laughs> I, I, I
0: just have to say that this is, uh, we, we're kind of new at this. We have a brand new switcher and it's got lots of sound effects. And we're all so excited. I mean, the whole G9 itself is excited. Isn't that right? Yeah. So I'm so, so sorry, Susan. Continue, please. <laughs> so, um,
1: so. The reason we chose to focus on Spasudi Island is because for one, nobody can get to it. It's um it's currently used for some mysterious military purpose that even I am not privy to. and uh, But it really serves as a crossroads of American history, if you look back. It covers all the way back to pre-colonial history, so there was a lot of Native American activity, all the way up to the Space Age. Spasuti was the site where APG tracked Sputnik 2 as it went across the sky. So we have a broad swath of history All on one tiny little 2,300-acre island that's right off the coast of APG.
0: Now, from my understanding, uh, APG was founded in 1917. Correct. Uh, Spasuti Island was not part of the Proving Ground until 1945. About 1945. 1945,
1: APG purchased the property. Um, We had begun leasing it in 1942-43. The Ballistics Research Laboratory needed that space to do some of its very important testing that it was doing during the war. The Army bought the property in 1945 from the estate of J.P. Morgan, Jr.
0: And this is the J.P. Morgan, this is the, the one J- and only.
1: The one and only. Well, he's J.P. Morgan, Jr., so Junior. his father uh, so, was, uh, the, so, well, you was know. the one and only. Um, so, But J.P. Morgan... Jr. died in 1943. So it was around that time that the estate was being settled. Okay. So that was an ideal time for APG to get this island that they had probably been interested in for quite a while but it was in the hands of J.P. Morgan and other rich New Yorkers because they had had a hunting club located on the island from about 1889 into the 1930s it was it was still being used by those people so uh
0: now do we know um how accessible the island was when it when it wasn't part of the proving ground for all those years
1: it was accessible only by boat the army didn't build a bridge to the island until 1943 so it would have only been accessible and it was only accessible through the proving ground so J.P. Morgan, after 1917, Mm -hmm. so J.P. Morgan, it was called, I've seen two names, the New York Rod and Gun Club, also the Spasuti Island Rod and Gun Club. Um, They were given access through, the. that was like a special thing that they were given um, to get to that land. But it wasn't permanently, you know, it wasn't a permanent residence or anything like that. They would come seasonally. Um, for the hunting. And so. this
0: was always by boat?
1: This would have been by boat, yes. Okay. So. Be-
0: so prior prior to that, though, was there ever a, a bridge? That, that
1: Not crossed? that I've seen a bridge, but um, as early as 1816, there was a ferry that okay. had been established. And that was one of when the Smith family, who we will talk about more, um, during their occupation of Spasuti Island.
0: That's interesting because I remember seeing a photo while we were researching this uh, topic and I thought it was a vehicle, a car that was on a bridge.
1: Yes, there was a, there is a photo of a car, but it's on a ferry that's going um, back and forth between Spasudi Island and the mainland. Gotcha. Before before the bridge was, as far as I know, the only, the first bridge that was built was built by the army in 1943. 1943. Okay. So, because, I mean, it's interesting because Spasuti Island always served sort of as a link between the land and the water. I mean, if you're going going back to the beginnings, um, the archaeological record shows that, you know, there were never really any big settlements on the island, but that there, It was being used probably seasonally for hunting, gathering, especially fishing, collecting clams and oysters and mm-hmm. things like that. So there's evidence that various Native American tribes, they were Algonquin tribes and Iroquoian tribes. So the Integrated Cultural Resource Management Plan for APG uh, sort of goes over the history of the whole area. So okay. that's, that's where I'm drawing this information from. Um, and they include historic context of, of prehistory as well as history. And in that, it really talks about how this area was sort of a frontier between those two really cultures. So it was probably not, you know, a big settlement area, but okay. that it was used seasonally for hunting and fishing. And it wasn't really until about the 1630s. So European contact happened in 1608 when John Smith, Famous John the Smith. The Captain John Smith. Captain John Smith. Of
0: Pocahontas fame? Yeah. <laughs> there we go.
1: <laughs> yes. Mounted an expedition <laughs> up the Chesapeake. And yes. he was in this area. Correct. And he named and mapped these islands. So he named, for example, Poole's Island. It was originally called Powell's Island for Nathaniel Powell, who was part of his expedition. And it got changed over time. And this Spasuti Island was called Beerson's Island. So, you know, even at that time, John Smith talked about the the bounty of the land and how there were birds and animals and fish galore. And so this was really like a natural resource wonderland, which it still is in many ways. And that's sort of what drew people here. Like it drew J.P. Morgan here. It mm-hmm. drew other people. It drew the settlers here. So... um so, so Captain
0: th- Smith, he didn't come for the duck decoys. He just...
1: There were no duck no decoys. No duck decoys at yet. that time? <laughs> no. I thought that's but, the
0: only reason anybody comes up this area. Just teasing.
1: <laughs> just teasing. But yeah, so uh, so so we made contact, European contact, with the Native American tribe. So around the sixteen, early 1600s to the 1630s, there was a tribe here called the Susquehannocks. Yes, yes. Which, of course, the river is named for. And they were the ones who really we have slightly more information on because they were interacting with the early settlers. And one of those early settlers was the person who named Spasudi Island. Do you know why it's called Udi? Island? Because it's kind of a weird word well, when you think of it.
0: Is it Mr. Udi?
1: Mr. Udi, Mr. right? Udy. Mr. Nathaniel Udi was given a land grant for the island in 1658. He was already living there. He had he had moved up a couple years previously. He was from Virginia, and he called it Spess Udi. Spess in Latin is hope. So it's Udi's hope. So it's it's his, you know, his big hope. And he built a manor and he called himself Lord of the Manor. And he was
0: As one would.
1: As one would. And he was really kind of an interesting guy because he was he was kind of being the heavy for the newly established colony of Maryland, which was granted a charter by King Charles the First in 1632. Lord Calvert, who wanted to settle a colony that would be more religiously free because he had converted to Catholicism. Oh, okay. So he wanted to settle a colony where Catholics and Protestants could live in harmony. He died right before the charter was issued. <laughs> so it became his son's job to establish Cecil Calvert is his oh, son. Okay, so you'll you, these names are yes, very familiar it's all coming together now. to anyone who knows anything about Maryland history or even if you don't um you've heard of cecil county you've heard of calvert county these are all the names so cecil calvert he was only 26 inherited all his father's lands he could not come to maryland to administer them because he was fighting against the uh people who had who were settling, setting up the virginia colonies and the pennsylvania colony to maintain his rights to the land, so he was back in England, trying okay. to maintain order, mm-hmm. um, make nice because England was going through some troubles at the time bit. as well. A little bit, <laughs> a little bit. There were a lot of civil wars at the time, so he he went in and out of power. But he sent his brother Leonard Calvert to be the first governor. That's the Calvert connection, and then so it's the Calverts who gave Nathaniel Udi this land grant. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Nathaniel Udi was the largest landowner in this area, and in, in what was called Baltimore County at the time. It, it became Harford County later.
0: Is this old Baltimore that yes. was where the proving ground is now?
1: Yes. Um, is that correct? He right. That was established about the same time in this in the 1660s or so. So yes. So the the seat of of Baltimore was
0: originally old Baltimore.
1: Was originally old Baltimore, which is. Within the bounds of current APG, which is also off limits, but um,
0: yes, it is. <laughs> and again, with peace and love, please do not come to these locations. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So, as I said, Nathaniel Udy was a very interesting character. He had gotten into trouble in Virginia. I'm not sure exactly why. It's all very vague. In so the was this
0: his main residence was yes, the there, island?
1: Yes. He built his manor house uh-huh. here, and I did manage to find a description. It's long gone. It was in, on the northern part of the island, and it was, this description was from about 1700, and it comes from uh, an 1886 article in the Aegis newspaper about the history of the Udis, and it described the house as as being a 25-foot house with shed two stories high, which is a pretty significant for them, yes. house for, you know, the 1700s, having outbuildings, a 40-foot hog house, that seems impressive, and an old house 20 by 15 with shed. So the old house is probably what he originally built. And then, you know, the newer house.
0: So his residence is here on Spasuti Island. So why was he in Virginia?
1: He was a, he he came up from Virginia. From Virginia. And he was he had established a trading post oh, with okay. the Native American tribes. He was dealing in furs and things like that. So he was really seeking opportunities for wealth, as everyone was at the time. Yes. He hosted a meeting in 1661 at his manor house regarding the colonial interaction with the Susquehannocks at the time. So basically they were reaffirming their treaty saying that the susquehannocks would agree to abide by the colonial rule that has had been set up Mm -hmm. that they would basically turn over anyone who killed a colonist to the to the colonial government and that they would reimburse people for animals livestock things like that were taken Mm -hmm. and in return the susquehannocks would get protection support from the colonists, which they ended up needing in 1663 when um, the Seneca from the north attacked mm-hmm. um, and the Susquehannocks managed to drive away with colonial support. So that sort of reaffirmed the the relationship between the native tribes and the colonists. But eventually, I think colonial pressures just overcame and, and the Susquehannocks had really sort of died out between Not died out, but had moved along between 1673 and 1675. So most of them moved south, first to the Patuxent River, then to the Potomac. Um,
0: So being on the island, was um, Udi, was he then protected? Was it difficult for, I mean,
1: safe from attacks? I mean, it's, it's you know, it's always been sort of an island of military importance in okay. some ways. Um, because, you know, you are a little bit isolated. You'd have to, you know, mount an attack by boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, by the 1700s, really, there was no threat okay. anymore. Um, <clears throat> um, but, you know, Udi died without any children. He married twice. Uh, he had an infant son who perished. The land ended up... Being passed along um, to his nephew, who was called George Udi, and they maintained uh, ownership of the island until 1779, when oh. they sold it to a Colonel Samuel Hughes, who was the uh, furnace master of Catoctin furnace oh, okay. out in the west. So yes, yes. Yeah, so that's the end of the Udi line. Is about you know right around the time of the Revolution
0: during the revolution though was there ever i mean i know the war of 1812 it yes. was kind of like a hot spot but prior to that did during the there's, revolution was there any th-
1: there's never there's never i haven't seen anything i think it was just you know it was used for agricultural purposes mm-hmm. there were tenants i mean so the Udi family owned it but there were multiple families who lived on the island and there were different farms and things so okay but um yeah so it really transitioned after the revolution and it became the property of the Smith family.
0: Okay. Now we get into our war heroes, correct? We get into our war yes. heroes.
1: So the Smith family, no relation to Captain John Smith as yes. far as I'm aware, but a different a different family of Smiths. So the Smith family were a family of prominent merchants. They had emigrated from Ireland in about the 1720s. They were fairly well off in Ireland at the time, from what I can discover. And so basically, there were two brothers who ended up emigrating with their families. So the person who purchased the property in 1802 was William Smith. And he was cousin to John Smith. And they had both come down from Lancaster, which is where the the Smith families had originally emigrated to and they already had businesses and they emigrated down to Baltimore around the 17, late 1750s, early 1760s. And they both did pretty well. Um, they were basically using the port of Baltimore to export grain and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but after the war, William Smith was very interested, I believe, in setting up himself as a man of property rather than a merchant. And he went on this property buying spree, and he is documented. Uh, I got a lot of this information from the Herring Run Archaeology website. They mm-hmm. have fascinating history of. The Herring Run property, which he owned at one time, but they also go into his history and background quite extensively. So he bought over 70 properties around the city of Baltimore and then out in the country. Um, There's no real evidence that he ever really lived at Spasuti Island. It seems that almost immediately he turned the property over to his daughter, Margaret. And Margaret was married to Robert Smith.
0: Okay, so Robert, Robert Smith.
1: Robert Smith, you may have heard of. Yes. Uh, he was... He was lead singer for The Cure, isn't that correct? <laughs> different Robert oh, Smith. Oh, I'm sorry. Different Robert Smith. Okay. Style. So um, Robert Smith was Margaret Smith's not only husband, but I think, I think it's like second cousin. So William Smith was her father was cousin to Robert Smith's father. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. But their so, But their mothers were also sisters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there was a lot. You know, it's all these uh, these families. Uh, so it was it was the Smiths and the Buchanans. Yes. Who were married. Okay. Who had married in, and you know they they created uh, businesses in Baltimore. And so Margaret and Robert Smith were given this this property, the Spesuti Island, and they're really the ones who built what is called Smith Manor on Spasuti Island around 1810 or so.
0: And this is separate from what Udi had built?
1: Yes. This is on the more uh, southerly part of the island. So it's a, it's a different property entirely, but you know, they were aware of that property and, you know, I think it might've, there might've been some remnants of it at the time they were Mm -hmm. on there, but, um, but, you know, Pretty much there were several large farms. But so Robert Smith, as we were talking about, had been the secretary of the Navy under Jefferson. And he was terrific friends with Jefferson. And then he became secretary of state under Madison. Is it Madison?
0: Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> this is fascinating. You're so he, so he
1: was a very prominent person. So he was occupying this island and had built a very jeffersonian type of villa
0: on
1: on this house um there's no evidence that jefferson was directly involved in it but it It adheres to those Jeffersonian ideals of architecture. So like a Roman villa using the Palladian model of symmetry and balance. So Mm -hmm. it was a fairly rare structure in Maryland. You see more of them in Virginia over the time frame. But there was very obviously, you know, it was a well-known property and it had a giant pecan tree in front of it, which was a tree that Jefferson admired. So yeah, so Robert Smith, pretty big in the government. Mm -hmm. His brother, Samuel Smith, was famous in Baltimore for the defense of during the Battle of Baltimore in the War War of 1812. So um, yeah, so Samuel Smith was the older brother. Okay, And he had undertaken this trip to Europe Mm -hmm. Before the Revolutionary War as part of his becoming you know as the oldest son taking over the father's business so he went to Europe and he was trying to establish um, you know new trade agreements with England and other countries so he came back right at the beginning of the Revolutionary War to uh, Vastly changed country because mm-hmm. he had been off in Europe, and then he comes back to a land of revolution. And the Smiths were very much on the side of the Patriots. They were they were not loyalists, even though it was sort of make sense that you know they would want to maintain their ties with England yes. because of you know trade. But for whatever reason, they were not. So Samuel Smith was involved with what's called the Maryland Four Hundred. Which was a regiment that fought at the Battle of Brooklyn in okay. the Revolutionary War, and basically the Maryland Four hundred is uh, given the honors, I guess, of allowing the other the rest of George Washington's troops to escape. okay they were fairly well battered, um, like not many of them survived, but Samuel Smith was one in one of the early regiments that managed to escape, but even though it was a fairly rough thing, but he was very aware of. Battle tactics and things like that. He was sort of responsible for the idea that he knew kind of where the British were going. Like he had predicted the the Battle of North Point, like that it would occur in that area down mm-hmm. in Baltimore. And and he was um, a major general over the local militias kind of thing. So he was able to have troops prepared in order to fight back the, the British attack. And maybe it was a little bit of revenge because the British had taken over Spesudi Island, where his brother was living. Oh, that's um, right. They did the occupy le- it. In the lead up to um, the, bombardment the bombardment of, of degree de So, yeah. So in 1813, you know, they took the island. They didn't really harm anyone. It sounded more like it was harassment and mm-hmm. a little bit of, you know, one-upsmanship cause, uh, because they knew that this was, you know, the property of a fairly high government figure so yeah so that was the smith family legacy and they continued on there um until the early 1900s so through several additional generations the smiths owned spasuti island and it was the smith family who first collected the stories
0: the stories the stories the stories
1: well, you know, it is our Halloween episode, John. That it is, that it so, is. So the, they had stories about the white ghost dog of Smith Manor.
0: And that story carried some weight because that was uh, that made it up until they were still talking about that and up until the 80s.
1: Right. And there was actually articles written about it, um, like in the Baltimore Sun, a 1954 article, Catherine Scarborough Relates. She's talking a lot about the Smith family history, Mm -hmm. but she also talks about the legends of the old manor house and more than one visitor claimed to see the shape of a white ghost dog, which would roam the house at night, most frequently spotted on the stairs. The stairs, you say? (laughs) The stairs.
0: Wow. So before we go any further... So, Susan, is this the same Robert Smith that is buried at Westminster Burying Ground in Baltimore?
1: Yes. So, yes. So, Robert Smith and his father-in-law-slash- first cousin once slash removed, brother <laughs> slash uncle right are buried at the Smith Mausoleum at the Westminster Hall and Burying Ground down in Baltimore and you know who else is buried there Sean?
0: That I do would you like to tell our audience?
1: Um, of course if you haven't visited it's, it's a great Halloween activity and you can go visit the grave of uh, uh, Baltimore's favorite man who died here <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe
0: now that's some spooky stuff right there, and I do recommend uh, making that effort. I think they used to. Um, uh, I hope they still do. Uh, they do offer tours of the catacombs oh, down in Baltimore. I haven't so, done so, the and catacombs. Then, and while you're there, pay a visit to Robert Smith. They have a very large tomb. That's right. With his name smack dab on the front of it.
1: <laughs> well, so, as I said, he was he was a, a pretty important person in in the government at the time. I mean. Can you say you were friends with Jefferson?
0: (laughs) No, I I cannot. (laughs) I, I can't do that.
1: No, so anyway.
0: And in an article that I found in the Aegis, dating from 1958, it mentions a ghost of Rome's Aberdeen Proving Ground.
1: Yes, the ghost dog of Spasuti Island.
0: And according to the article, it's the only ghost with a classified secret clearance.
1: (laughs) Why is that, John?
0: (laughs) Well, that's a good question. But it does have documentation here that the ghost was seen by the Clark family who occupied Smith Manor at the time.
1: Yeah, so the Smiths continued to own the property up until the early 20th century. It was the grandson of Robert Smith. His name was um, John Donald Smith. And he was actually a very famous botanist who explored South America and was part of the Peabody Institute overseeing that. And he donated a large collection of materials to the Smithsonian. Um, But he, I think, is the one who collected the ghost stories of of his family's house
0: cuz that's pretty interesting because according to this article miss clark says that one night she heard the ghost dog and started down the stairway which looked like a setter and was walking toward her quote i ran back to my room and closed the door she says adding that the dog was never seen by other members of the family, although it was heard almost every night. I'm sure it pretty much sounded like that.
1: (laughs) I'm sure, Sean. I'm sure it was just a cute little puppy, right? Right, Sean?
0: (laughs) Nevertheless, at night, and always at night, members of the family would hear the dog. Sometimes it would be walking up one of the several stairways in the house. Or walking down a hallway. Chapman Clark, Miss Clark's brother, also told the APG News that the pattering of the dog at night was a familiar sound in the Smith Manor. Today, the Smith Manor, with its shuttered windows, still stands with a eerie appearance of a genuine haunted house overlooking the Chesapeake Bay from Spasuti Island. And again, the house is no longer there. No. It's long gone.
1: This article was from the 1950s when yes, the house stood, st- still stood, but at this point, there might be a little bit of rubble, but there, that's all that remains of the once very famous and prominent Smith family. That's
0: right. Move along. There's nothing to see here. <laughs> so, Susan, to get back on track. Okay. So now we are up to what year?
1: Well, let's see. So in the 1920s, you know, there was some change happening. Um... The the island was sold to a development company in the 30s. Um, J.P. Morgan Jr. and two of his buddies from the Gun Club purchased the rest of the island. They had purchased about 700 acres in the 18 late 1880s and had built a very elaborate clubhouse, which was very Victorian. Um, And large. But so in the in the 30s, they purchased the rest of the property. And then in 1943, J.P. Morgan passed away and APG began leasing the property to use as part of their testing lands for the Ballistics Research Laboratory.
0: I believe what attracted Morgan down here was the duck hunting because Habity Grice was so so plentiful.
1: Yes. Uh, There were quite a few duck hunting clubs in the area of APG that were quite a draw for the famous people at the time— Rover Cleveland hunted at Spasuti Island. Did he really? Yes. There's there's documentation of him he, as a guest of the New York Duck Hunting Club.
0: Now, was Theodore Roosevelt, did he, was he at Inhabited Grace at what was the well-known duck club up there or I'm, hunting club? I don't know. Okay. We're going to eliminate that then? <laughs>
1: okay. I don't know about Theodore. Um, another famous person who hunted in the area was Annie Oakley. The hunting was plentiful. Um, It was it was regulated somewhat, but it was it was sort of a mishmash of state laws. And so it was really right around the time that APG began to occupy the land in 1917, 1918, that the laws were starting to change because there was a conservation movement going on. People were starting to realize some of these once plentiful resources were going away. Um, So in 1918, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was signed, and it was signed with Canada and Mexico. It was basically to protect some of those migratory birds, including ducks. And it eliminated the practice of baiting ducks, basically making them sitting ducks, as it were. (laughs) So, um, so that was outlawed and they, and they put more restrictions around hunting seasons and things like that. So, so while in the late 19th century, it was, it was, you know, quite the thing, it was a social thing. It sort of began, you know, you could see the writing on the wall, as it were, that like this practice was going away. So while the Morgan and people like that maintained control, it was starting to fade out of popularity. Have they extent.
0: deplenished the population of ducks?
1: I mean, there's,
0: are... I was told at one time, like in Habitat Grace, you could overlook the water and you would see, you couldn't even see the water. There were so many right. ducks.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think they were still plentiful, but people started realizing that like, there weren't as many birds migrating okay. as that you know, that w- it was noticeable in other areas. So that's why, you know, these treaties and things came about that protected some of these species so that they would be available for the future for, you know, um, to continue to hunt for pleasure. And so, you know, duck hunting is still allowed. It's a seasonal activity and it's monitored by, uh, you know, state regulations, but overarching it is the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Okay. So, so yeah. So in the 30s, um, the Morgans bought it. APG started to take interest in it. You know, they had leased land as early as 1926 on Spasuti Island to, uh, to you know, as a garage space. So the Ballistics Research Lab, and this is how we get into the title of our, our episode, as, as you said, um, brought on board a very famous scientist at the time, Dr. Edwin Hubble, who was world-renowned at the time as an astronomer.
0: So why would they choose to need the um, knowledge of an astronomer for BRL, which is ballistics?
1: And that's interesting, and um, most of my information comes from Gail Christensen's biography of Dr. Edwin Hubble, and that's taken mostly from the um, journals kept by Grace Hubble, Dr. Edwin Hubble's wife. She was a pretty prolific journaler while she was with um, Edwin Hubble. And,
0: and also his copy editor. Think, <laughs> right.
1: He was a terrible speller from, from what I've read. Roger that. <laughs> um, but it's all kind of vague. Like she was told that he was meeting with important people, like when the war started, mm-hmm. he was being asked by many different people places to like do this do that I mean he got asked about code like to work on codes and ciphers okay. one time he was asked to participate in the Manhattan project which he turned down um, and I don't know exactly why they picked him basically they were searching for a head of external ballistics okay, um, which is which deals with like how ballistics like their 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 structure and how they fly and that kind of thing. That's what external ballistics, I had to look that up because I'm not a ballistics Well, let's get an, an astronomer to tell us all about it. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's interesting because Edwin Hubble admitted when he first talked to Aberdeen Proving Ground, he came out to visit, he had to look up what ballistics was oh. in the encyclopedia. So this was not his area of expertise, but he was considered probably one of the premier... geniuses of the time um he was known for basically discovering that there's more than one galaxy because up until the 1920s 30s there was this belief that the milky way was -hmm. the only galaxy and the other things they could see were something else but not other galaxies so he um he classified them. Um, he began working at Mount Wilson, which had a 100-inch telescope. It was the largest telescope in his, his existence at this time, out in Pasadena, California, in 1919. He had served in World War One. He was a major in the infantry. It seems like he didn't really see much action. He was in Europe briefly, but, like, he didn't see much. But... Um, but he had come to astronomy. It was an early interest, but his father was against it. He uh, got his uh, bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago. It was a fairly new college at the time. But, there, you know, really trying to create a new Midwestern sort of Ivy League experience. And he was a Rhodes Scholar, meaning he was awarded a scholarship to go study at Oxford in England and mm-hmm. he ended up at Queen's College but because of pressure from his father he studied law
0: okay so <laughs> Even covering th- all the bases <laughs> he was
1: covering all the bases he was a bit of a very interesting character uh, he told a lot of tall tales oh, about goodness. himself um but what but it is interesting because he was in this in the you know the the old halls of Oxford, I think it's the second oldest university in the world after Paris, University mm-hmm. of Paris. But he he, he uh, had some encounters with ghosts while he was there because uh, his old uh, lodging, evidently peop- they would be in their rooms and they would hear the stairs creaking.
0: Did you say stairs? <laughs>
1: I did say stairs. Could they it mean,
0: have sounded anything like this?
1: It was something like Very that, possible. but and they'd open their doors and there would be no one there, and so they ran a little experiment and they realized because the stairs were so old, it was about twenty minutes after someone had gone up the stairs, the stairs were basically rebounding Re- oh. and making noises. See,
0: there's always a reason.
1: There's always a reason, but you know, but he had other encounters, and he, you know, he was even though he was a scientist,
0: he was still a believer he, in well, the paranormal.
1: Not really of the paranormal. He was open. He he didn't like to come to a definitive conclusion. Okay, he wanted to see which way the evidence pointed. I can get on board with it. that. So, so anyway, so as so said, Aberdeen Proving Ground. So Aberdeen Proving Ground. He's brought here. Um, he comes in August of nineteen forty-two. Oh, to, so
0: right at right at the beginning right. There.
1: So right at the beginning. Um, He was very pro-war, which was interesting um, because, you know, he was sort of with that that, um, intellectual class and he had many friends who were pacifists. And, you know, he was very tied to England and he had a lot of English friends who were like against the war effort and, you know, but he was very much pro-fighting the Nazis. He had seen war Mm-hmm. In World War One. And he he was very upset with the thought that like the Germans were not keeping to the agreement they had made, their gentleman's agreement from World War One. So um, you know, that's probably why he agreed to come to APG doing something he really wasn't experienced with. Mm-hmm. Um but really just sort of creating a more rigorous research base here. Um, he was really hands-on while he was here. Um, there are stories of him. Uh, so at the time they were developing the bazooka to okay. penetrate armor. And it was considered very dangerous because it kept misfiring and injuring soldiers who were practicing it. And they tested it here at APG. Really?
0: Shoot, aiming it the right way? Was like shooting <laughs> behind him? Instead of no, four? but
1: like so basically he went <laughs> out and like shot it himself until he found like nice. where where there was a de- defect in the design and it was sent hence redesigned. Okay. Um, and also during his time, like his unit became specialists in the design and operation of bomb sites because really they were working for the first time with like figuring out how bombs flew out of airplanes because they didn't have the firing tables that would account for, okay. like, you have to let the bomb go three miles before your target and you have to know how it's flying through space. And well, so that's a big oops. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's what they were working on here mm-hmm. at BRL during the war and um, external ballistics. So by November of 1942, he was upgraded from a consultant, to head ballistician, and he was given the highest civilian rank outside of Washington, which is a pretty big deal when you think about it. Considering
0: you had to look up ballistics.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, okay, he and his wife, Grace, were very close. They didn't have children. Mm Mm-hmm. But she was really like kept him tethered in a lot of ways. But at the time he came to APG, there was an extreme housing shortage because APG had ballooned. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there was no place for Grace to live. Now, what Um, about
0: Hubble himself? Where was he living?
1: It seems like he was mostly living in a hotel in Havre to Grace. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. Um, But he was, I mean, he was at the office until 10 o'clock at night. So really, he was just sleeping and, you know, he so was very busy.
0: Was the on-post housing, was it reserved for soldiers?
1: There was, officers it or? was just, there was, you know, there was no, I mean, he, he could find a room, but like it wasn't. He, it's okay, like a barrack. Base. Right. Okay. So his wife, Grace, was from a prominent banking family in California. Mm-hmm. She had been married before her husband died in a sort of Miny accident when he was overcome by noxious fumes and and then tumbled to the ground. So and she also had her inheritance from him. He was also from a prominent family in California. So, you know, she was a daughter of privilege, I mm-hmm. would say, you know, and and he came from a fairly humble background originally from Missouri, but he had sort of created this sense of himself, you know, the old English and at, when he w- first went to um Mount Wilson, you know, he was called Major Hubble because he was still in his uniform because oh. he came right after the war. So he had sort of created. So they made
0: him an officer.
1: He was an officer. He was an officer. He was was an that officer. from his
0: existing service or?
1: That was uh, from his service in World War One?
0: World War One. Yes. So he. He was.
1: he When was, he
0: came to Aberdeen Proving Ground, is so he a civilian?
1: He was a civilian. They had offered that he could either come on as a civilian or re enlist as a lieutenant colonel. But uh, the powers that be in D.C. were thought there were too many higher level officer okay. positions being created. So he never really he he was never recommissioned. So he's he was here as a civilian the whole time. But he was a very high ranking civilian. Okay. Um, so after um, B.R.L. leased Spasuti Island in 1943.
0: So this is the government's first.
1: Real, yes, so, possession, okay. possession of, of Spasuti, Spasuti Island. Island. And they
0: own it now. It's kind of Well, be, they're, they're
1: leasing it. They're leasing it. They're leasing it because, as I said, J.P. Morgan had passed away, Junior had passed away in 1943. So his estate was dealing with all his properties. Mm-hmm. Edwin was... Pretty well connected. I mean, he they had dinner with movie stars, they met Einstein when he came out to California. I mean, they knew all the people who were like the people to know. So he basically contacted the estate of JP Morgan and was told Hubble did, Hubble did, okay, yes, and was told that there was. So, of course, there was a large gun club, but. Attached to the property was a very small house from the 19th century. It was like two rooms downstairs, two rooms upstairs with like a bathroom built on the first floor.
0: I've seen this. I've seen a photo of yes. this building. So
1: um, he was told that he could have possession of this property for as long as he was there because the, they were trying to settle the estate and they weren't using it This time. So Morgan... The so the, estate, the Morgan's
0: state, estate is the one that allowed him yes, to occupy the, the building. Yes.
1: So that was the only way he could get his wife to come out to APG and live with him. So because, you know, he was working all the time. He was working till 10 o'clock at night. So but they were, you know, as I said, very attached to each other. The thing he did not tell Grace at the time was that the house was called Haunted House. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'd probably keep that to myself too. Right, right. You know, so it was. My wife it, wouldn't need to know about that. It was
1: kind of a shack. I mean, the windows were constantly. No,
0: let's be honest. It was a shack. <laughs> it was I've a seen sh- this photo, I've seen them in front of the yeah. house. It's a
1: shack. Right. So, um, as I said, it was like four rooms. There were mice. They had a wood stove. And and Grace, you know, they were used to having like a house servant. hmm. Um, you know they were fairly
0: government work for you what can I tell you
1: (laughs) fairly well to do and she came and was like because the windows would crack because from the time Biero leased it the house was constantly shaking because they were testing and one day while they were living there the door blew off because of the the repercussions from one of the testing and by the time Edwin got back it had been fixed but um, and he never noticed so I mean, one time they were, they had gone away for the weekend and the, um, the house was damaged in a fire from the wood stove. Mm-hmm. Um, they put some soldiers on it and, like, it was better than ever by the time they got back, but it was still... Say
0: what you want. I mean, from the photo, <laughs> it looks like it was on its last leg. And it, and who knows, it could have looked like that when they built it, but it was definitely... Um, yeah. It's,
1: well, uh, I guess when the, when the generals would come visit Hubble, they would shake their heads and say, like... No lieutenant would even live there for fear yeah. of losing their sho- social status. Yeah, <laughs> but I
0: guess it was the payoff was it was close to It was it, it was extra- he was right there. He, was he didn't right have to there, go to right. and I mean, back and forth.
1: Right. They were doing their work there on Spasuti Island. He was right there because they were also building the first supersonic wind tunnel at the time.
0: Yes. So, that is correct and I believe I believe that building is still standing. Correct. I, I believe the, the that, that, that one was?
1: is, Yes. So Which
0: you do not come onto the installation. <laughs> you do not try and find. But yes, I believe the wind tunnel building that he um, developed. Right, you could say. Well,
1: the the wind tunnel was developed by Caltech okay. at the time. Like they developed a model of it, mm-hmm. and he was associated somewhat with Caltech. Did he
0: modify it? Because I always hear about you know being on the proving ground for almost twenty years now. That the the Hubble building and the Hubble. Of the wind tunnel.
1: I think I he he his group worked on it, like okay. were the first people to use it to work on it for really using it for the ballistics testing. Um, you know, Caltech Mount Wilson had an association, the observatory had an association with Caltech. They were both right mm-hmm. there. And he, you know, was at one at one point all the all the astronomers Located at Mount Wilson, were, we're also on the faculty of Caltech. Okay. Um, so there was a, a close association there. So, um, so, really, you know, he's there till the end of the war. They leave in December of 1945, closing the door, which never had a lock mm. behind them. Um, they came back in October of 1946. Edwin Hubble was awarded the Medal of Merit, which was the highest civilian award granted by the president oh, at the incredible. time. So that's when they went back and took those pictures that you're oh, referring to. Oh, that is. So okay. they came back and visited the house. Um, yeah, so the—, the Pictures are part of the, his collection at the Huntington Library out in California. Okay, he was on the board of directors of the Huntington Library, which has you know an enormous collection of art and so literature and he, things like that. He was
0: so. out of here faster than an
1: aerostat. <laughs> well, you know, he went he went back <laughs> because he he was continuing his his work. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, they were developing a two hundred inch telescope because they had uh, Mount Wilson was. It was in Pasadena, but it was so when he started there in nineteen nineteen, it had sort of just come online. Um so they were taking pictures of these nebula. Mm. He always called them nebula. It wasn't till after his death that the term galaxies really came into use. Um but he, you know, he developed the classification system okay. of nebula, the types. He he determined And this is really the big thing, why he was famous, that um, the galaxy is actually expanding. Mm. It's not because there there was no clue really at the time. There were different theories about the the universe. So based on the spectrometry of the light taken using these photographs that they would take on this hundred. So the mirror was a hundred inches. Oh, wow. So that's that's why it's called the 100-inch. So, like, they could see back in time, which they had never been able to do before. So they were waiting after the war for the new 200-inch telescope down at Mount Palomar to come Mm -hmm. online um, so that he could – because basically he had gotten as far as he could using the 100-inch telescope. He couldn't like, yeah, he's like, Hey guys need a bigger one. (laughs) Right. So, uh, so it is kind of interesting that, um, later on after, so he, um, Hubble died in 1953. He hadn't quite finished his work. Um, but you know, he had, um, his apprentices carried on and finished, Mm -hmm. um, doing his work. He, He had a sudden stroke. He had had a heart attack a couple of years before and, you know, he seemed to be recovered, but he died suddenly. He didn't want to be made a fuss of when he died. So there were only five people who attended his cremation mm-hmm. and his his remains were buried at an unknown location oh. that only five people ever knew. And then once Gra- his wife, Grace, passed away. Well, quite a few years later, I guess her remains were also buried there. So we don't know. And no where, one knows. No one knows where that is. I so. bet it's not Spasuti Island. It's probably not <laughs> Spasuti Island, one would hope. But but anyway, so so in 1953, he passes away. In 1957, Spasuti Island is used by BRL to track Sputnik 2 as it goes across the sky using brand-new telescope. Technology that mm-hmm. they had developed to track missiles—it's kind of an interesting ju- juxtaposition Sounds when you like... when you think about it. That like Hubble, who used the telescopes to map the stars, and of course, who the Hubble Space Telescope, which is basically a large satellite telescope. Yeah, that's what well, was named for him in the 1990s. You know, on the same small island, Spasuti Island, they tracked one of the first times. A dog traveled <laughs> in space. And unfortunately, you know what happened to
0: that dog. It couldn't be that. Uh, well, it,
1: you know, no. that would happen to that dog on Sputnik 2. No. Well, if you think about it, you know what oh, happened to okay. that dog oh, on Sputnik oh. 2. So, you know, the dog. Well, dogs, you know, you think
0: white ghost dog, you know, you think, oh, it's possibly zero from, you know.
1: Right. So, you know, it, before it, Christmas. All, it all comes together that, you know, um, from, from satellites Dogs. It's all happening at Spasuti Island, or or did in the past.
0: Yes, it did. Well, I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) this has been uh, very delightful. Um, Just you're just full of information, full of information.
1: And I hope uh, you know the next time if we do another one, if we do another one, um, we can talk about another island here at APG. Oh, do tell. So we thought our second episode would be about Pools Island, which has, Uh, of course, one of APG's most recognizable landmarks. That it does. And if you don't
0: know what that is, you're going to have to tune back in. But you could do your own research while you're at it. But anyway, um, Susan, thank you so much. It's been delightful.
1: Thank you, Sean.
0: You're welcome. And until next time, this has been APG's Hidden History. And uh, we will see you on the second episode. Thank you very much.
1: Bye.